So uh, I didn't have uh, advance notice about speaking tonight, so I'm going to share with you what I've sh- been shared, uh, shared this morning, what I preached this morning, if that's okay with you. I'm in the midst of a series that we've been uh, doing called Rules of Engagement. And uh, we've been basically looking at one Bible story from uh, the book of Exodus and the great uh, Red Sea crossing. And, and since that's such a familiar uh, miracle that took place in the Old Testament, I don't really have to give a lot of background. Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and, and forge right ahead and get into the message tonight. But I'm glad you're here, and uh, I hope that you get blessed tonight. Uh, about a year ago, uh, I uh, had something really bizarre take place uh, in, my, in my life. It was at night. Uh, I was asleep. Uh, and uh, so many of us probably you could relate to this. After a, a while on one side, you turn over to the other and, you know, turn back and forth during the course of the night. And as I was turning over in the middle of the, of the night, uh, I had this very strange sensation that I was like on a, like a rowboat. You, you ever been on a rowboat and somebody starts to rock the boat and it kind of goes back and forth? Well, that's, that's what I felt, but I knew I wasn't, I wasn't dreaming and I wasn't on a boat. I was in bed and I knew something really weird was ha- happening to me. So I kind of sat up and uh, as I sat up, I realized that there was something going on with my head, with my perception, um, the way I, I kind of explain it is that, that, say, I'm looking this way, and then all of a sudden I want to focus, say, on the, the exit sign. Uh, when I would turn my head, it's like my vision was like two to three seconds behind uh, following my vision, and it was like really weird. Uh, I, I woke up my wife, you know, not a real good idea to do unless it's serious, you know, so I wake her up and I said, I said honey, uh, I need two things. I need an aspirin. I don't know if I'm having a stroke or what. I, I, I need an, and I need prayer. I think I said first, I need prayer and I need an aspirin. And of course, you know, she, you know, kind of freaked out a little bit and uh, was concerned and, uh, you know, got me an aspirin. I tried to get up. And, and when, I, when I tried to stand up, you know, the, roo- the room was kind of moving. And I literally had to hold on to the wall next to me. Uh, to balance myself, my equilibrium was so uh, was so off. Um, took the aspirin, took prayer, uh, eventually fell back to sleep. Woke up the next morning, and I was fine. And and it hasn't happened again since, right? But my wife, you know, being concerned about, you know, hey, you know, I, I told her like Arnold Schwarzenegger, it's not a tumor. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that, that's for you. <laughs> I said, it's not a tumor, you know. But she said, you know, you need to, you need to have it checked out. So, so I called the doctor, right? And the doctor says, go to the emergency room, you know. I said, no, I don't want you to check. No, he said, go to the emergency room. They have the equipment and whatever. So I go there. They give me an EKG. They give me blood tests and a number of other things. And they said, you're fine, you know. Uh, I guess they said it was vertigo. Now, I was really blown away this morning because I, when, when I asked this question, there was about 25% of the people in the room that experienced vertigo. So I'm going to ask you, have you ever experienced vertigo? Can I just see your hand? So just like a few, right? So you know, you guys know how weird of a sensation the experience of vertigo is. 
And, I, and I'm telling you that story because I came across recently, I came across an article that just sparked my attention because the headline, this is, this is the headline that really attracted me to this article. It said, despite the best training and technology, why do pilots still die from not knowing which end is up? And, and I began to read this article, and, and one of the things that it cited was an example of a Major Gregory Young, a 34-year-old uh, pilot in the uh, National uh, Air Reserve who was uh, doing training over the coast of Oregon, flying his plane, uh, and he flew his plane at 600 miles an hour directly into the Pacific Ocean. And, and, and the thing that was so bizarre about it was that there was, there, there, there was no uh, indication that the airplane was in, in a malfunctioning mode, that there was no distress call. He didn't eject from his plane. This, this $32 million plane crashed, and everybody wanted to know why. The family wanted to know why. His colleagues wanted to know why. Friends wanted to know what happened. In this, in this situation. So the Federal Aviation began its investigation, gathering up the, the, the wreckage, what was, what was found of it. And of course, uh, this was the, the death of this uh, pilot. He had like 2,300 hours of experience. And in fact, he had 750 hours of experience in an F-15. So, so this is not something that he was, he was not a novice in this situation. And what they came up with, the aviation department came up with this, that it was spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation. He was disoriented, uh, and it's called, spatial disorientation is called pilot's vertigo or or aviator's vertigo. And what happened in this crucial moment was that he relied upon his instincts instead of his instruments. Now, this is what the, what the article went on to say, that, it, that, that this kind of vertigo is, is a killer. It's a persistent killer. 50% of all aviation accidents take place as a result of this spatial disorientation. And uh, I was just amazed at this statistic, that that pilots who, do, who are not really instrument trained, who don't have a lot of experience with, with instruments, you know, their life expectancy, listen to this, when they're flying either into the dark or into clouds is, is 178 seconds. Their life expectancy. I mean, that is amazing. That, that's less than three minutes and, the, and life is over unless they can, unless they can break this pattern of following their instincts rather than in the, in the instrumentation. Now, now this is what the, the article said. Pilots must learn against all contradictory sensation the difficult discipline of an absolute belief in their instruments. Now, you can see where I'm, I'm, I'm possibly going with this point of bringing this all out, that despite his expensive or extensive uh, training and his experience. What happened at a critical moment was that this pilot relied upon his emotions and his feelings and his sense of perception rather than his instruments. 
Now, now th- th- this is, is really so important because what they said in this article was this, that we who have been, you know, we're, we're, we're used to the earth. We're used to walking on the earth. We were created to, to, to be on the earth, earthbound in a sense, and, and not we were created for the heavens, right, for, for the clouds. And therefore, as a result of that, our earthbound instincts are absolutely useless in the clouds. And that's why we've got to learn how to trust, right, in the instruments. And, and, and what I want you to know is this, that each of us will face critical moments in our life when we have to make life and death decisions. It's in those moments, those critical moments, that we need to have an absolute belief in a Savior who loves us and who wants to guide us for our good and for his glory. When we find ourselves stuck between a rock and a hard place, when we find ourselves up against the wall, one of the things that we must learn how to do is is this scripture, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. That is, don't trust your feelings. Don't trust your earthbound instincts, but rather put your trust and your confidence in, in God's instrumentation, which is, which is his word. It says, he who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. Last week at the conclusion of, of my message, I, I shared that, that men and women who have their minds fixed on God, who have their minds stayed upon the Lord, experience a peace that is perfect, but they also gain a strength that is outside of themselves. It's a strength that God communicates when our mind is stayed upon the Lord. I don't know who the author of this following paragraph is, but he, he's somebody who understood the importance of the Word of God. Let me, let me share this with you. He said, this book, the Bible, is the mind of God the state of man, the way of salvation, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. Its decisions are immutable. That is, they never change. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's GPS, the soldier's sword, the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, the gates of hell disclosed. And I love this, Christ is the grand subject. Our good is its design and the glory of God its end. It should fill our memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly. Frequently, prayerfully, it's a mind of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ, yes, and to glory itself. That's somebody who has understood the value of the Word of God, which we are to treasure. David said, your word to me, O God, is greater than gold and greater than silver, greater than great spoil." are they that love your word. And we're to view the word of God as the 
instrument panel in, in, an, in an F-15, if you will, that will safely guide us through the, the dangers of this life. Therefore, let me share this statement with you. And I believe it's the truth that the life of faith is neither smooth nor easy. The life of faith is neither smooth nor easy, all by divine design. God in his wisdom has designed the footsteps of the righteous. And though it's not easy and though it's not smooth, yet there is wisdom in God's design. It's in the moment-by-moment experience where, where we will look to God for guidance, where we will look to God for protection. Here was a critical moment in the lives of Two million people, as they were stuck between a rock and a hard place, were coming to it. Here's, here's the children of Israel by the Red Sea. The chariots, Pharaoh and his army is pressing toward them. Their, their goal is to, is to capture, re-enslave them, or to kill them, or to destroy them. And so they're stuck between, between a, the devil and the deep blue sea. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so at this moment in their life, will they rely upon their earthbound instincts, fear, and, 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 and the desire for survival, or will they put their trust and their confidence in the God who has cared for them all of this time, the God who showed himself powerful on their behalf while they were in Egypt and even now at this very moment. So we pick up in this story. And you know what? In, in many ways, this miracle of the, of the Red Sea so typifies our salvation. It's, it's, it's the grand miracle of the Old Testament, but the grand miracle of the New Testament is, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ where Jesus has destroyed principalities and powers in the same way that God overthrows the Egyptians and the horse and the rider in the sea and puts an end to Pharaoh once and for all. And so God has put an end to to the power of sin and death over the lives of those that believe in him and put their trust in him. So we pick up in this kind of cliffhanger. You know, I love this story for so many reasons. For, for one, it, it shows the absolute helplessness on the part of the Israelites, but it also reveals our helplessness, that we could not keep ourselves saved. We, we could not save ourselves initially, and we certainly can't keep ourselves saved. But there is one who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy, and that's Jesus Christ. The irrefutable truth that Jesus Christ provides for us everything that we need because salvation is of God. It's not of man. It's not of works. It's not of, it's not of self-righteousness, but it's of the mercy of God. So we pick up in Exodus chapter 14. You can follow along with me on the screen. Verse 13 says this, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. If you've given your heart to Christ, I want you to know that that same last sentence that I just read, verse 14, is true of you. God will fight for you. If God be for you, the Bible says, who can be against you. And then the Lord said in verse 15 to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on or to move forward. 
Now, I've got to stop here for a minute because that verse has always kind of troubled me a little bit. Because it wasn't Moses who was crying out to the Lord. It was the people that were crying out to God. And their cry wasn't a cry of faith, but it was a cry of complaint. It was a cry of accusation. It was a cry of unbelief. So, so why does it seem to me anyway that, that the Lord is, is seemingly annoyed at, at Moses and, and saying to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to move forward. And I think the answer is, I think the answer is this, that God dealt with Moses as the intercessor, as the representative of the entire people. And I think that's a really good thing because God, God dealt with the entire human race through the one man, Adam, but God's done something marvelous in that now he deals with the entire human race of those that believe through the one man, Christ Jesus. And there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, as Moses interceded for the nation. You know, at one time, the Lord was so annoyed because they had provoked him to, to temptation so many times. The Lord said to Moses, stand aside that I might destroy them and raise up from you a greater nation. Moses said, can't do it. He said, can't do it, Lord. He said, your enemies will say it was because you were unable to bring them in. You can't do that, Lord. What about your mercy that you said endures for a thousand generations? And the Lord said, okay, I won't. Moses stood in the midst of that. You know, Moses was, was the man who said, said, wipe me out of your book, but forgive this people their sin. And you know, in essence, that's exactly what Jesus did in bearing the consequences of the wrath of God for us as us when he went to the cross. Amazing the one intercessor, the man Christ Jesus. Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch your hand over the sea to divide it, divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will come after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all of his army, through his chariots and through his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Let me just stop here for a minute as well. You know, not only did the Egyptians come to know, not only did the Israelites come to know, but the, the whole Middle East came to know. All the Canaanite nations had heard about what great thing God did in splitting the Red Sea and causing the Red Sea to part so that they, they were able to walk on dry ground. Forty years later, they were still talking about it when Rahab in the city of Jericho is talking to the spies, and she says, we, we've heard of what your God, the Lord Yahweh, did in parting the Red Sea. So, so it not only lasted uh, as a miracle, but it became the center of their DNA for the, next, for the next thousands of years as the people of God. And then it says this, in verse 19, then the angel of God, the messenger of the covenant, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. So neither went to the other all night long. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night, notice it says, all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind, and it turned into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, and the wall of water on their right and on their left. You know, this is such a mega miracle in the life of the Jewish people that, that, that even today when they celebrate their Passover, right, one of the network TV, you know, stations is going to show the movie The Ten Commandments. How, how many of you have ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments, you know? I mean, they play it every year, every Passover, because, because it became such a part of the distinction of them as a people. But, 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 but you know what? It's a, it's a little, the movie is a little contradictory to what I believe is really being said here. If you notice, I made that emphasis that the Lord parted the Red Sea all night long through that east wind that was, that was separating the waters. I came across a 19th century Bible expositor by the name of C.H. McIntosh. He is not the inventor of the Apple Mac, but, but, but his name is McIntosh. He believed that the Red Sea was divided not throughout all at once. See, that's the way we want things to be done for us. But it was done where they had to have one step at a time as they put their trust and their confidence in God all that night long as they crossed. This is what he said, and I quote this. He says, God never gives guidance for two steps at a time. When I take one step, then I get light for the next. This keeps the heart in abiding dependence upon God. Now, I bear witness with that statement in my spirit and also according to the text, but also by my experience. I I know that God has led me on many occasions, step by step, moment by moment, day by day, as I put my trust in him. See, that's the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people. A life where we're dependent upon him. It's a good thing to be dependent upon him. You see, there's a progression in this life. We, we go from faith to faith and from, from glory to glory and from strength to strength. There's a progression of it. It's a daily God providing for us, our daily bread. And I say this, blessed are the people that discover a complete dependence upon God because, listen, it not only gives God glory but it causes the world to stand up and to take notice of the man or woman who lives completely in dependence on God. And I'll share a story about one such life. His name was George Mueller. Maybe you've heard of him. Back in the 1800s, back in England, in Bristol, England, uh, when he was a kid, he, he, was, he was far from you know, going to church. He was, he was said to be a liar, a thief, and uh, a gambler. Uh, he stole from his father government money at the age of 12. At the age of 14, while his mother was dying, he was gambling and getting drunk. But like so many of us that have had, and I speak for myself, a checkered past, when we come to Christ, there's a, there's a, a transition, uh, there's a, a transformation that takes place. God changes us from the inside out. And this man was changed and he became an evangelist. But more than, more than becoming an evangelist, he became a father to orphans 
And over the course of a lifetime, he cared for more than 10,000 orphans. Started five different schools, educated the poorest of the poor in England, about 120,000 people or children over the course of, of, of his lifetime. But he was a man who lived with absolute dependence on God. He was known for the fact that he never asked for contributions. If people gave, they gave willingly without him mentioning their needs. And on this one well-documented occasion, it was when the orphanage had no food whatsoever, but they sat down for breakfast anyway. And when they prayed and gave thanks to the Lord, by the time they finished giving thanks, there was a knock at the door. And who was it but the baker who had freshly baked loaves of bread for all of the children that day. And, and just coincidentally, coincidentally, the milkman's truck or, or wagon broke down and, I mean, what is he going to do with all that milk? It was going to spoil. And so he brought it into the orphanage. And God provided for him not only on that occasion, but many other examples just like that. And the world takes notice. The world stands up and takes notice when we determine that we're going to be living a life that's completely dependent upon God. Look at how the Apostle Paul put this moment by moment, this day by day experience. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The ability to see beyond today, to see, to see God who is invisible, to be able to endure seeing him working in our life. Listen, when life is hard, what the apostle is saying here is that the, these are momentary troubles not worthy of comparison, what, what God is doing is designing for us an eternal weight of glory. You know, there's a story about a medical student. Uh, he was still in school, and he, and he was working himself up to, to the point where he almost had a nervous breakdown. He was, he was worried about graduating. He was worried about starting a practice. He was worried about making a living. And, and, and literally, he almost had a nervous breakdown. But then he came across 21 words. 21 words that, that changed his life because it began to change the way he thought. You know, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You'll discover that the battle really is not in the circumstances as much as it is in the mind and in the attitude with which we have. This man went on to become one of the greatest physicians of his generation, was knighted by the king of England, was the organizer of John Hopkins School of Medicine. And this is, this is the statement that he came across that changed his life. Our main business is not to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to do what lies clearly at hand. Let me say it again. Our main business is not to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to do what lies clearly at hand. See, w whether he realized it or not, he was tapping into a spiritual principle that Jesus taught in the Scriptures. And it has to do with living one day at a time. 
Don't be anxious, Jesus said, about tomorrow. God will care for your tomorrow, but live one day at a time. Listen, Jesus not only taught about a step-by-step living, but Jesus himself lived a step-by-step dependence upon God. Consider the word guidance. I think we, we have that word up, up there. Yeah, see that word guidance? Look at God, G, you, and I dance. See the last five letters of that word guidance has dance in it. I want you to think about the guidance that comes from God is like dancing. When two people are dancing, it's impossible for them to dance well if both of them are leading. One of them has to take the lead and the other follows. When, when one takes the lead and, and gently begins to, to, to nudge in this direction or, or to do this or to do that, you see, that's the kind of guidance that, that we need to have in our relationship with God as we follow him, as we are sensitive to his still soft voice. You see, one of the things that, that dancing with God requires is trust, attentiveness, a surrender, a willingness to be, to be sensitive to his still soft voice. I want you to think about this with me. In this step-by-step, day-by-day, moment-by-moment following after God. I, I'm having work done at my house. Uh, we're redoing the kitchen. And uh, the house right now is just a complete mess. There's like spackle dust all over the place. And there's uh, dust from having sanded the floors and, you know, sand the floor, you know. Uh, and I've got these sheets uh, hanging in between rooms to kind of protect them from the dust. And, and I've had these sheets just, just hanging at the bottom of my stairwell. And uh, the other day, uh, it was in the morning, it was about maybe 6.30 in the morning, so it was still relatively dark. And so I'm coming down the stairs with a tray in my hand and two empty coffee cups. My wife and I had coffee, you know, uh, up in bed in the morning, you know. So I'm coming down the, the steps, and I didn't realize it. Uh, I thought I was on the landing, but I wasn't. There were still two more steps to go. So I went flying, the tray went flying, the cups went flying. I mean, it was a real, Katie, you would have laughed, you know. <laughs> Just like that, I'm telling you. You know, I mean, it was, it was kind of, I really, I didn't get hurt, you know, but, but, but it was like just a reminder, you know, many of the times we stumble and we fall when we, when we fail to take one step at a time, you know, uh, I I thought there was, I was at, I, I had finished my steps, but, but there were two more steps. And so many times in our life, we mess up because we're unwilling to, to go moment by moment, step by step. This is exactly the plan that God had for the children of Israel. They were to follow step by step. Now I want you to think about this, that as they trusted in God and as they began to walk, God began to open up more of their Red Sea, which required a fresh step of faith each time God began to open up the sea for them all night long as that east wind began to part that Red Sea for them. That requires, listen, a step of faith. And that's the life of faith for us. It's not easy. You see, we, 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 we want to know the future. We, we, we want to know what's going to happen next week. 
But many times, you know, uh, it's God saying, no, trust me. Put your confidence in me. Uh, you know, it's only natural, you say, that, that we want to know what the future is. But listen, for the child of God who will put his trust in God, knowing that God knows the future is sufficient for us. It will satisfy us. When your back is up against the wall, you can come to discover that in the midst of a situation just like this, you discover something about the awesome nature of God, that he does care for us. One old uh, hymn writer said it like this, never a trial that he is not there, never a burden that he does not bear, never a sorrow that he does not share. Moment by moment, we're under his care. Have you come to know God like that? That he does care for us, that he cares for us moment by moment when our back is up against the wall. This is what I want you to know, that you can put your trust in him, put your confidence in him. You see, God gives us grace for today. You can't store up grace. You don't have grace for next week because you're not living next week yet. But you have grace for today because today is what you've got to deal with as a result of that. Listen, I discovered one thing as a parent and as a grandparent, you know, as much as I love my kids and my grandkids, there's no way, I mean, it is ludicrous for me to think that I can shield them, protect them from the storms of life. Life happens. I can't protect them from the storms of life. But what, I, what, what I've discovered this is that it's most important is that when the storms of life come, that they know that their dad is present with them in the storm. And that's exactly what God was doing. The heavenly father was making himself known to the children of Israel. And that's what he does to us. When life washes over us, he makes his presence known. And his presence becomes more important to us than the temporary relief or the temporary comfort that we might receive. So coming back to this story, the angel of the Lord. Who is that? The angel, the messenger of the covenant. I, I believe it's the same, the angel of the Lord who spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham, do your son no harm, for now I know that there's nothing that you will withhold from me. And it was God who was speaking to Abraham. It was God who spoke to Abraham when he came and spoke to him at the door of his tent. And they spoke about Sodom and Gomorrah. You might remember that. And, 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 and they were talking about if there's 10 righteous in the city, God will spare the city. It is one of the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. And who is this now? But it's Jesus himself who is gone before, who is leading them, literally ushering them to safety through the Red Sea. Look at this verse one more time. It says in verse 19, Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so that neither went near the other all night long. And that is so much like the character and the person of Jesus. What a perfect description of Jesus. He is light to those that trust in him, but he is darkness to those that reject him. He is comfort to those that believe in him, but he confounds those who are his enemies. He's a shepherd and a guard to those that put their trust in him, but a judge to those who reject him. 
the revelation of God's presence in the storm is far greater than our freedom from the storm. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't want to go through the storms, but when you, you don't go through the storms, you don't know that God can deliver you through the storms because the presence of God, listen, is never as sweet as when you discover him in the most difficult moments of your life. Moses came with a revelation out of this experience to write about the everlasting arms of God, that God was caring for him, that God was keeping him safe. A couple of generations ago, they they talked about what Moses did in envisioning the, the presence of God. See, Moses lived in the reality of the nearness of God. As a result of that, a couple of generations ago, they talked about practicing the presence of God. When you practice the presence of God, it means that you cultivate this sensitivity to that still soft voice, that you cultivate a, a sense of the presence of God. When, when, when you pray, you're not praying into the air, but you're praying into the heart of God in the presence of his angels. You envision the throne room of God. I believe that's one of the reasons why we have Revelation 4 and 5. It is a vision of the throne room of God, of, of angels ascending and descending upon, upon the throne of God. And I believe that that helps us to focus and to fix our attention upon the one who was able to save us and to rescue us. I was reading a, an interesting article about the subject of awe and the subject of, of being, you know, experiencing something that is really awesome. And this was a secular article, but it described awe as something that intersects between mystery and fear and, 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 and insight. And, and went on to describe it as overwhelming, surprising, humbling, even a little terrifying. Awe is what we feel when we're faced with something sublime, exceptional, and altogether beyond comprehension. When I read that, I said, that's God. My God is beyond comprehension. My God is sublime and he's an exceptional and he's awesome. You know, 53 times in the scripture, God is referred to as being awesome. Awesome in wonders, awesome in deeds. One of the psychologists was, was doing an experiment in this article and it went on to describe that, that half of his class uh, was, was to answer this, this simple fill-in-the-blank kind of a question. It was, it was, I am, and then they had to fill in the blank. But half the class was facing this full-scale replica of a Tyrannosaurus, Ty, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Say that fast three times, you know. And uh, the other half of the class was facing a hall, a blank wall, Right? And what the, what the psychologists found over and over again repeatedly w w was this, that the, that the students who were looking at this grander-than-life kind of thing thought of themselves as grander and larger uh, and described themselves as part of the human species, while the class that looked at the wall, the blank wall, described themselves in smaller, narrower terms, like, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a soccer player or I'm a basketball player. Uh, what am I saying to you is this. When you fix your heart and your mind upon the awesome greatness of God, your problems will, will, will be as small as they really are in the sight of an awesome God who is great and mighty. 
And we believe in a God who is awesome. I'm telling you to fix your eyes on this God. When you do that, when you, when you occupy your mind and fix your hearts upon the greatness of God, just look at the majesty of this universe. Contemplate that. Somebody came up to me uh, at the end of service this morning and told me about this video, uh, this DVD that I should get. It's about these scientists who have uh, come up with all of these explanations of the wonder. I think Pam, it was your mom, gave me this, this, this idea to get this video. And uh, it's about all these scientists who, who've come to know the majesty and the splendor of God. I'm going to get it, you know, because stuff like that fascinates me. When you think about, about the fact that there's about a billion galaxies, and each galaxy has about a billion stars in every single galaxy, but God, Isaiah says, brings forth the stars, and he numbers them, and he calls them by name. And God, he measures the universe in the spans of his arm. He holds the oceans in the hollow, the crevices of his hand. This is an awesome God. Come to know this God from Scripture, and you will put into perspective these light momentary troubles compared to the excellency of the knowledge of him. What I want you to take away from this message tonight is simply this. Because life is not smooth and life is not easy and it's by divine design so that, so that you might learn the sufficiency of God and his care for you. Because listen, all of this is nothing but words tonight until you come to the point where you could say, like the Apostle Paul, my God shall supply all your needs by his riches and glory in Christ and mean that experientially. See, God wants you to experience this, not just to know this intellectually, so that you come to the point where you know that God will make a way of escape for you because you've given your life to Christ. That you could say that my God can do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we're able to ask or think according to the power that is at work in me. And let that become personal in your life. Dance with God tonight. Let God lead you. Let God guide you. Let, let God direct you in this dance so that the music flows together. And it's not awkward. It's not, it's not confusing. It becomes, it becomes dancing to the music. Let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight for the word of the Lord that you've given to us here at Collision tonight. And uh, in closing, we, we once again pray for Doug and his family that you would just fill the family with peace and faith and grace and that you would fill us here in this room tonight with grace and faith as we begin to dance with you, as we are submissive and attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, for the footsteps of the righteous, they are ordered of the Lord. Step by step, you want to lead us and direct us day by day in increments. You will make known your will toward us as we look to you. And so we thank you tonight, speaking to our hearts. And we all said together, amen. Amen. Let's all stand and worship him one more time tonight.